0: Most importantly, I really want to say if you're a longtime follower of Jesus or maybe you're just investigating who Jesus is, I really hope this message encourages you to take your next step in your journey of faith or in your journey of investigating faith. Thanks again for listening. Today we start a brand new series on the life of David and David's story picks up in the 11th century and it's hard to wrap your mind around the world that he lived in. Um, It's hard to wrap your mind around what that was like, specifically around ancient warfare that was so a part of their time period. Like, you can't really get it. And then in, like, Hollywood, like, we've glamorized it, we've romanticized it, um, we've airbrushed it. And so incredibly epic movies like Gladiator and Braveheart, like, give you this picture— that you, you can't really understand. Nobody can really understand it. Some of you a little better than others of us, but it's hard to really go back to that time to smell what they smelled, to feel what they felt, to see what they saw. Like it's hard for you to really wrap your mind around what that was like in that time period. And the thing about ancient warfare that is so different, and again, some of you can relate at, at some level, but, but what was so different is battle was not fought at a distance. Like, nobody was viewing what was happening on the battlefield from a drone, that they weren't looking at it from across, you know, some distant part of of the desert. It it was hand-to-hand combat, meaning you were face-to-face with your enemy, and you peered at them over a shield, and literally, when you went into battle, you got close enough that you could smell their breath. You could see into their eyes, You could, in some cases, probably get close enough to almost hear their heartbeat. And when you looked into their eyes in ancient warfare, in many cases, you would see terror. You would see fear like you've never seen fear in somebody else's eyes before. In some cases, the person across from you would have drunk enough that they would be able to just lose all inhibition to be able to do what they're being asked to do in the moment. But the one thing that you didn't want to see in the eyes of the person that you were staring across the shield at was a look of calm. Because a look of calm meant that that person was a professional killer. And unless you had been on a shield wall before, unless you were a professional killer, it meant that you had almost no shot at surviving that encounter. And when you got done is when you would assess your wounds because the adrenaline would be so much that you really wouldn't know what was happening in battle in the moment. It would only be after where you would have blood all over you and you would have to assess whether that blood was your blood or whether that blood was somebody else's blood. And they didn't know a lot about germs. They didn't know a lot about disease. But what they did know is if they got punctured and the clothing went into the womb, they knew it was probably over for them. And if they discovered that after the battle, they knew that their time on earth was about to end. And then the worst thing that they could experience on the battlefield is when they were next to their brother in arms, and suddenly somebody right beside them retreated. When that happened, they knew they would die, it would be over, and their body would not be buried. It would be left on the battlefield to be eaten by birds and animals, and their carcasses would rot with nobody coming back to drag them. Welcome to church. (laughs) So in 1 Samuel 17, 17, it picks up with his story and says, now the Philistines gather their forces for war and they assembled at Socah in Judah. And the story talks about Saul. He is the leader and the king of the armies of Israel. And you've got the Philistines, which is their major enemy. And Saul begins to assemble his army in the Valley of Elah and the Israelites and their army take um, camp on one side of the hill. The Philistines take camp on the other side of the hill and they get ready to fight And then verse four, many of you know the story, even if you haven't been around church, it says, and then a champion named Goliath, who was from Gath, came out of the Philistine camp. And the greatest sports reference in history was born in this moment, besides all the other theological implications. Like, this is it. Every, the greatest movies of all time, which that's not disputable, it is Hoosiers. The backdrop is the David and Goliath story, right? Like, it's... And here was the trump card like this is um, to use another sports reference because I can't help it when talking about David and Goliath. This is the Philistines and the Israelites. And it's like you got the Warriors winning 73 games and then signing Kevin Durant and the balance of power shifts and it's over. You are not going to beat them. That's Goliath, like maybe they're pretty even and then you throw Goliath in there and it's all over. The balance of power shifts, apparently there's not there's zero NBA fans in here, got no love for any of those references. But this is the moment where it's all gonna change because they're staring back at a guy who is six cubits in a span it's about um, to talk about, which means he's about nine feet tall. This is minute Bull plus a foot. One more NBA reference. I'm just gonna keep going until I get... Somebody in the room. It says that he's got a bronze helmet. He's wearing this scale armor that weighs about 6,000 shekels, which is over 100 pounds, like 115 pounds. The guy has um, a shield bear that goes in front of him. And then Goliath has a javelin about 600 shekels behind him. And I'm not talking about, I'm not talking about a, like a little sword. I'm talking about a javelin that's about six feet in length that weighs about 15 pounds And Goliath literally could stand behind the first shield wall and he's so tall and he's got this six foot long javelin that he would stand behind it and just reach over and take people out. He was, like he's Megatron. He is, nobody's gonna defeat him. It's not gonna happen. Nobody is even willing to fight this guy. In ancient warfare, he is the trump card and nobody is gonna take him down. He's an intimidating dude. And so in verse eight, Goliath stood and he shouted to the ranks of Israel, why do you come out and line up for battle? Like Goliath starts throwing shade at the entire Israelite army going, why are you guys even assembling and lining up like you're gonna fight? Because nobody in their right mind is gonna fight me. I am not a Philistine, I am not a Philistine, and, you are not the, and and are you not the servants of Saul? Meaning Saul's your king, like, why are you here? So he says, choose a man and have him come down to me. And then verse nine, if he's able to fight and kill me, we will become your subjects, but if I overcome him and kill him, he will become our subjects and you'll serve us. Meaning, you guys got no shot. And I'm gonna, I'm gonna raise the stake so far because I know that you can't defeat me. And so I have no hesitation whatsoever to go. If we take you down, you become our slaves and our servants. And so verse 10, the Philistines said, this day I defy the armies of Israel. Give me a man and let us fight each other. The problem was Goliath wasn't defying the armies of Israel. And so verse 11, on hearing the Philistines' words, Saul and all of the Israelites were dismayed in both campuses and what? And terrified. And here they are. The entire Israelite army is freaking out for good reason. Nobody wants to fight. Saul, who is the commander and king of the Israelites, the Israelite nation and army, is nowhere to be seen. And everybody in Israel is looking for a champion. Everybody in Israel is looking for a hero. And for good reason, they look to their king. They look to their king for two reasons. Number one, he's the king. That's who you look to. Number two, in ancient warfare, the tallest guy in their mind was the greatest warrior. And so literally part of the reason that Saul got selected as king is he is the tallest guy in the armies of Israel. He just looks like a king. And so they're looking for the tallest guy, the commander, the king, to come out and to lead them to victory. And all of their hope for a good reason is in Saul, waiting for Saul to lead them to victory and somehow find a way around this impenetrable fighting machine. Now, here's where our story intersects, because here's the reality for every single one of us thousands of years later. This is just true of us. We place our hope in what we depend on. It goes further than that. We place our hope in who we depend on. It's why you have the potential to resent your parents more than you resent anybody else in your life. Because you have the potential to place your dependence and your trust in your parents more than you would trust anybody else. And what you depend on and what you trust in is the level of your hope. It's why the level of your dependence and trust in something is also the level of your disillusionment, disappointment, and sometimes anger when it doesn't go the way you want or they don't go the way that you want. Because all of your weight was leaning into them. Your hope was in them. I mean, you've seen this with your kids, Like, your kids are great, but there's things that you want to change, and they never get mad at the neighbor's parents. In fact, they go over there, they come back, and the neighbor's like, they're so respectful, they're amazing, and you're like, who? Whose kid? Like, my, my little boy, who is amazing, and I'm so proud of him, he just started school and he's doing great, but he's almost doing too good. Because I take him to school and like he goes in and he's amazing all day long. And when he's leaving, I just want to stop him at the threshold of the door to go, listen, I'm doing most of the heavy lifting in this parenting like relationship with Nicole. I wasn't excluding her. Like the teacher is amazing, but we're doing the heavy lifting. Could you bring some of this home with you? Like some of the listening and respect and obeying, like bring that home to us, Right? It's just the way it works. Like where you place most of your hope, most of your trust, most of your dependence. It's there's this greater potential to be disillusioned or disappointed, and there Saul is conspicuously absent. He's losing credibility literally day over day, and all of the armies of Israel have completely lost hope. All of their hope is dead. And what's interesting is this whole conflict illustrates and really amplifies the fact that God didn't want Israel to have a king in the first place. God never wanted Israel to have a king because God had a very specific agenda. And he knew that wherever you place your dependence and wherever you place your trust is ultimately where you're gonna place your hope. And so God did something literally about 400 years before this that set Israel ahead of every other nation by thousands of years. In fact, if you're skeptical and you're listening, and we have a lot of skeptics and I love that and you're not sure about the whole thing, you should just take into account this that thousands of years before any nation had ever discovered this, God established Israel as a theocracy, which meant a nation of law administered by judges. Because here's what God knew. I I wanna be their king. I wanna be your ultimate king. And then there's gonna be laws. We're gonna create laws. Judges are gonna administer them. But ultimately, I want your hope and I want your dependence and I want your trust to be in me above everything else. And so a few years before all of this happened, Israel complained to the prophet Samuel to go back to 1 Samuel chapter eight, verse one, and said, when Samuel grew old, he was their prophet, he appointed his sons as Israel's leaders, basically replaced himself. Like, I'm old, we need a a new judge, a new prophet. And so verse three, his sons didn't follow his ways. They turned aside after dishonest gain and accepted bribes and perverted justice. So basically, if you've got the money, like, you're, you're going to get acquitted. So rather than if the glove don't quit or fit, then we're going to quit. If the money's right, you're going to see daylight, ultimately. Um, if you're over 40, you have some idea what I'm talking about. If you're not, you have no idea what I'm talking about. Um, so all the elders of Israel, verse 4, gathered together and came to Samuel at Ramah. And they said to him, Samuel, you're old, by the way. And your sons don't follow your ways. Now appoint a king to lead us such as all of the other nations have. Basically, hey, we wanna be like everybody else. We wanna have what every other nation has. We wanna be like the cool nations. Everybody has a king except for us. We want one of those. We, we want to be in on that. And here is where... So, we so confuse the Old Testament. is a whole other message. The church gets so confused by this. We take passages out of context and throw them on coffee mugs and T-shirts and they, they lose all of their meaning. We love to take verses like, God's gonna do a thing in your days that you wouldn't believe even if you saw it. And we're like, that is so inspirational. Yes, I am gonna start that business and succeed. God's gonna do an amazing thing. The only problem is three verses later, God says, I'm gonna kill everybody. And then we slap that on a Christian t-shirt or mug. Listen, there's lots of great inspirational verses about God being with you. Don't rip an Old Testament verse out of context about what God's gonna do in your life and it has nothing to do with God's promise to you. Just my little pet peeve. Here's what they didn't know and what a lot of us forget in church world is why we jack up the scripture. God established Israel for a very specific purpose that had a lot more to do with just Israel. In fact, God came to Abraham early on and said, hey, Abraham, through you, Through you, I'm gonna bless the entire world. Through you, I'm gonna do something that ultimately is gonna have a ripple effect through every generation and through on every continent and through all of the history of the world. It is bigger than Israel. It's bigger than you that eventually through you, there's gonna be a nation, there's gonna be a king and he's gonna be the king and he's gonna offer salvation to the entire world. And so God wanted everybody to look at Israel and go, okay, not who is their king, but who is their God? Because through Israel, they would look at Israel and the nations would go, man, why are they so blessed? Why does God grow their crops? Why do things seem to work out for them? Why do they have victory in battle? And it was for one reason. God wanted people to look at the nation of Israel and go, this God, Yahweh, is legit. He's got a plan. And then through that nation, a king and Messiah would come and he would offer what every bit of humanity needed, which was rescue and salvation, apart from what they could do, instead what God could do. And eventually God would set up a kingdom and a king, but it would be one king, the king of all kings. And Israel was the messenger for that message to all of the world. But they're like, we just want one. And so verse six, when they had said, give us a king to lead us, this displeased Samuel. So he prayed to the Lord, verse seven. And the Lord told him, listen to all the people are saying to you it's not you they rejected, but they rejected me as their king. Now listen to them, but warn them solemnly and let them know what the king who will reign over them will claim as their rights. Because God knew what they didn't know because they'd never operated under a king, that a king is gonna require stuff. He's gonna tax you. He's gonna take some of your herds. He's gonna draft your sons into war. There's going to be some, some impl- implications to what you're asking me to do. But Israel insisted, we want a king. And it's interesting because Israel's insistence set the stage for the most detailed historical narrative, maybe in all of ancient literature, the story of King David. Now, here's what I hate about this. And this is another, just a, sometimes I just like to get stuff off my chest when I preach stuff. Um, the thing that we tend to do is take narratives in the scripture, make certain narr- narratives nothing more than little children's Bible stories with some kind of moral, like, like I don't know, like moral, here's what you should do with this. And it completely loses its power and its context altogether. And by the way, we're usually not very good at it. We don't really know the age at which to share certain stories. So we, we scare our kids to death by, hey, you need to obey God. One time God, um, he had Noah bring all of the, his family and all of the The animals into the ark, look here, it's illustrated. Look at the cute little animals going into the ark. And then God shut the door and he drowned the entire world and only his family lived. Good night, Johnny. (laughs) Don't worry that it's raining outside. God will never send a flood. Like we just do this. Later, we turn Jonah into nothing more than you just need to obey God. And by the way, Jonah got thrown over a ship, swallowed by Shamu and then vomited up. God loves you. Can't wait for our beach trip. Like, we just scare the heck out of kids. And we we make little moral stories that have nothing to do with their original context. I'll come back to that later. David is an unbelievably epic story with so much relevance. And in a lot of cases, we've totally stripped its power away. David, maybe, maybe arguably, but I don't think it's arguably, was the greatest king of Israel. He was incredibly flawed. It gives so much insight into how God sees and how God evaluates and how God judges. And he was a king that somehow, he was reluctant in a lot of ways. He was incredibly confident. And then simultaneously with his confidence, he was incredibly humble. And here's the thing that made David unlike the average king during that time is that that David, he talks about this over and over again in the literature that he wrote, David loved the law meaning God had administered a law for the nation of Israel and and part of that law was simply to show them how to operate as a nation. It had an expiration date. It didn't carry into the New Testament. But he wanted the nation to go, hey, listen, if you follow me, if you go this direction, if you trust me, I- I'm going to bless you. I'm going to lead you. I'm making a covenant with you. And David talks about the fact that he loved that because he knew that every time God's law confronted him, it was God going, I want something better for your life. I, I want to show you Israelites how to handle relationships and your crops and your future and your time and, and how to do, I-, I-, I want you to follow me into all of this and so that even when the law bumped up against David's behavior. David didn't do what every other king did. Every other king just changed the law. They just decided to make up new rules. It's exactly what we do thousands of years later when all of a sudden you move down a road where your behavior starts to change or maybe you want something sexually or there's some other area of your life and then you begin to kind of to create this narrative that you don't believe anymore and it has nothing to do with intellectual reasons. It has everything to do with you started to behave a certain direction and now you've gone to find a belief system that'll match your behavior. And David never did that. In fact, David knew that he was a king under authority and that even when his life bumped up against the law and was conflicted or or was contrary to what God had said, David submitted himself to it. In fact, in many cases, David was broken by it because he knew that God's way was better. In fact, David's approach to the law and what God had for Israel and for him provided extraordinary clarity because he was never a king that was confused about the identity of Israel's true king. And it wasn't him. And you know what, like this is just real. A lot of us struggle with that because success confuses us. The moment things start to go pretty good with family and you feel like, man, I got it together. You start a business and the market share is tracking the direction that you want. You get the promotion. Things are going well in that relationship. And all of the sudden, and it doesn't even take much, we start to place ourselves on the throne of our life and all of a sudden our hope is in us. And where you trust and what you depend on and what you lean your life into, that ultimately is where your hope is at. And David never did that. And you see incredible insight as a 15-year-old kid to go back to our story, verse 11. It says, on hearing the Philistines' words, Goliath's words, Saul and all the Israelites were dismayed and they were terrified. Now, David was the son of an Ephraim Ephrathite named Jesse, who was from Bethlehem in Judah. And David was managing the family business. He was doing what nobody else wanted to do, which was herding the sheep. He would go to the battle lines and basically give supplies and food to his three older brothers who were fighting, Actually, they weren't fighting. They were just watching with all the rest of the Israelites. He would bring like a care package to the commander. And so David gets to the battlefield to bring these supplies. And he hears the taunts of the enemy. And he hears Goliath probably dropping explicatives and, and just throwing shade on the entire army of why are you guys even here? Why are you even coming out acting like you're fighting? And David's response to those taunts were different than anybody else. Of the thousands of people assembled, nobody had this clarity. David gets to the front lines, he hears it, and David is the only one who is offended by it. David is the only one that's offended by it, and he hears it, and he starts to ask questions that reveal his clarity, and they're questions that nobody else was asking. In verse 26, David asked the men, standing near him, what's gonna be done for the man who kills the Philistine, and this is really powerful, and removes this What's the word, both campuses? Disgrace from Israel. And everybody around David is like, what? We don't see it the way you see it. We see a nine foot giant that is beyond our ability to overcome. This guy could take out hundreds of people sitting behind a shield wall with a spear. And by the way, disgrace? It's not really disgrace. This is just a military endeavor. And David's like, this isn't just a military endeavor. You don't understand what's happening in this moment. And so who is this uncircumcised Philistine that he should defy, not the armies of Israel, that he should defy the armies, the living God? Nobody asked that question. And here's what uncircumcised Philistine meant. It just meant they were outside of the covenant of God and outside of God's protection, and they were trying to steal land that God had already promised to Israel. And let me just tell you, this is where our story intersects right here, because for some of you, you got some stuff in your life And God has not promised victory over everything, but there are some things that are literally threatening the will and the desire of God for your life. And you have allowed that enemy to taunt you you have allowed that enemy to get you into a place where you feel like there is no way forward and there is no victory over that. And what you need to understand, whether it is shame, whether it's fear, whether it's anxiety, whether it's worthlessness, whether it's some kids that God gave you and you feel so inadequate to parent them and you're about to give up, that anything that comes against the will and the covenant and the promises of God doesn't just come against you spiritually. It's not just an emotional problem that you're facing. This is not just a physical problem that you're facing it literally is defying the god of the universe that you serve and anything that is outside of the promises of god is outside of the power of god and god's looking at you like david was looking at the armies of israel going why has nobody acted why have you not confronted this Why have you not got into counseling? Why have you not revealed this? Why have you not taken steps to confront this? Why have you believed the lie that you are victim to this enemy where literally God's will for your life is on the other side of it and it is coming against what God has for you and anything that is outside of God's promises and God's will is outside of God's power and you're sitting with all of the power that raised Christ from the dead with an enemy that's taunting you and God has already said, My power is on your side because they're trying to take land that has already been given to you. So finally, somebody overhears David and they end up ushering him in before Saul and Saul's kind of excited because there's apparently one dude who's willing to go out and fight Goliath. And then David gets before Saul and Saul is bitterly disappointed. Like you're a kid you haven't been working out, then look like, you don't have any scars, you don't have any wounds, it, it is apparent that you have no experience on a shield wall, like, dude, don't, wait, don't waste my time, it, Saul gets even more disappointed, because he finds out he's got three older brothers that are more qualified than David, and all of them are out um, at the battle lines, none of them are willing to fight, and it, like, David is the guy that you send me, And so David like is talking to Saul, and he starts to give his resume. This is like one of the most epic part. Like, I, just I know, I know, I don't look like much, but I did kill a lion, and um, I did kill a bear. In fact, no, I didn't just I didn't just like defend myself. Like, he came and got one of my sheep. I hunted the thing down. I grabbed its hair. I beat him to death. I killed him. Like, come on. And so, verse thirty six. David says, your servant has killed both the lion and the bear and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them because, not because of my skill, not because of my experience, not because of my IQ, but because he has defied the armies of the living God. And then verse seven, the Lord who has rescued me from the paw of the lion and the paw of the bear will rescue me from the hand of this Philistine. God rescued me then, God's gonna rescue me now. Not just because I've decided I'm gonna have enough faith and because I have enough faith, God's gonna do it. God has already made a promise. And here's what David knew and it gave him extraordinary clarity. An enemy of God's people is always an enemy of God. An enemy of God's people. Hey, hey, Goliath, you're not defying me. Goliath, you're, you're not even defying the armies of Israel. But what you need to know is every enemy of God always has an expiration date. And David knew that for the man or woman who puts their hope in the Lord, they do not need to be afraid, even when there's something to be afraid of. And I love it because David was a poet, David was a writer, and so he actually journaled, wrote songs, wrote poems during all of the experiences that we read in the Old Testament. And so literally during this time as he was going out to the battlefield and he was poised to try to take down Goliath, he wrote about what he was feeling in his heart, and he wrote this in Psalm 25, one that gives you so much insight. He said this, in you, Lord, my God, I put my trust. Not my leadership, not my ability, not my IQ. And this is the posture that God wanted the entire nation of Israel to take, and they just wouldn't go there. They just wouldn't do it. They wouldn't allow their trust to go in that direction. So David says, Verse three, no one who hopes in you will ever be put to shame. And then verse five, he says what no king during that time would ever say, what no king during that time would ever declare. Guide me in your truth and teach me, for your God, my savior, and my hope is in you all day long. So back to the story, David is a 15 year old clear eyed kid and he ends up, don't really understand why Saul did it, but moving out to the battlefield, confident, somehow humble. And he makes his way down to the Valley of Elah and the Philistines see him. And I mean, it's just a joke. Like, are you, are you seriously sending this kid out to us? He has no armor. He has no experience, it's obvious. And you're gonna have him come up against this Philistine. Like literally Goliath was offended. And can you imagine the armies of Saul, the armies of Israel, looking at David go out onto the battlefield? This little kid, he's 15, he has no armor, and they're thinking, Do you know what is at stake for us? Like, we become the slaves of the Philistines if this guy loses, and this is who you're taking out to the battlefield to rep Israel. Like, why in the world would you do that? And Goliath comes out. And David comes out and David listens to the taunts. David listens to the battle cries. And in verse 45, David said to the Philistine, you come to me with sword and spear and javelin, but I come to you in the name of the Lord Almighty, the God of the armies of Israel, whom you have defied. Goliath, you haven't positioned yourself against me. You haven't positioned yourself against the army of Israel. You've positioned yourself against God. And David proceeds to give Goliath a little picture of the future. Hey, Goliath, I know that you're nine feet tall. I'm about to take you down. I'm about to kill you. I'm about to feed the carcasses of the Philistines to the birds of the air and to the beasts of the field to the end of verse 46 so that the world will know that there is a God in Israel who will not be defied. In verse 47, this is David, and all those who are gathered here will know that this is not by sword, It's not by spear that the Lord says, for the battle is the Lord's and he will give all of you into our hands and Goliath came closer and David began to move in his direction and this no name kid with no experience takes down the most feared enemy at that point in all of the world and in that instant he becomes the most popular man in all of Israel. And in that instant, he becomes the most feared man among all of the Philistines. And the moment Goliath face plants and hits the dirt, the Philistines make a tragic decision. Verse 41, after he killed him, he cut off his head with the sword. And when the Philistines saw that their hero was dead, they turn and they ran. And that moment it was over. And the Israelites ran down the Philistines, they plundered them, they completely overtook them and annihilated them. After weeks of being taunted and allowing this to go on without anybody willing to fight because David had clarity and saw something that Saul was never gonna be able to see. And this is true for every single individual that is able to put their hope In the Lord. Those who put their hope in the Lord, there's three things that characterize them that you see from the life of David. They see clearly, they act confidently, and they walk humbly. They see clearly because they understand what few people understand that my confidence and my trust is not in me. My confidence and my trust is not in my ability to control outcomes. My confidence and my trust and my hope is in the Lord. And one of the things that clarifies as you decide, I am not leaning any weight into my own life is all of a sudden you are able to see what needs to be confronted. You are able to see the things that defy the living God. And then that moment, there's no fear, even when there is something to be afraid of because anything that is outside of the promise and the will of God is outside outside of the power of God and you have incredible clarity to go, listen, I can walk confidently because God is with me and I'm not doing this on my own and I'm not confronting this on my own and I'm not going by myself. But listen, simultaneously, I'm going to walk humbly because I'm going to understand and recognize that I cannot control the outcomes of my life because there are too many variables outside of my control. And the only thing, the only option that I have that makes any sense is to lean the weight of my life against the one who controls and holds all of the world in his hands, including all of the variables that I cannot control. And my declaration becomes in you, Lord, my God. I put my trust. In verse five, and my hope is in you all day long. Like, can you imagine? Can you imagine if you got up every single day and that became the declaration of your life? I trust in you, Lord my God. My hope is in you completely. Listen, I think one of the most powerful things you can do is get in the scripture sometime to start your day because it, it is a reset button on your life because there is so much that's happening around you. There's so much of life that can overwhelm you. There's so much anxiety that can just get its way into your heart, into your soul, into your emotions. And you need a reset, I think literally every day that just reminds you, okay, here's who I am. Here's who God is. I am not alone. God is with me, but I am not in control of my life. He controls every variable of my life. And so as I start this day, I just want to declare again, God, my hope is in you. My trust is in you. I am not going to make this mistake of leaning my life in my ability to depend on me and control the outcomes of my life. So I just am going to declare, I need you today and I need clarity to know who you are and who I am and where all of my hope lies and it's not in me. Can you imagine as you're driving to work and you have so much to anticipate, so much is going well, so much is tracking in the direction that you want. Or maybe you're in a place where you're driving to work. You're about to assume your place in that cubicle or in that corner office and you're dreading, you're agonizing over what's coming next. And you think to yourself, you pray out loud, God, I trust in you, Lord, my God, my hope is in you all day long. Or you find yourself in that unique place every once in a while where everything is going great and you are the smartest person in the room during that time and there is success and everybody is looking to you. And you whisper under your breath, I trust in you, Lord my God. My hope is in you. Or you get into those moments where you're not gonna take Goliath down. Goliath is gonna overpower you. And you have every reason to try to manipulate and maybe, maybe try to self-medicate, maybe run, maybe choose to, God, I, I just don't know if I can follow you right now in this. I'm, I'm just gonna get angry. But instead, in the midst of that moment where you know I'm not gonna overcome it, it's gonna overcome me. Lord, I trust in you. My hope is in you all day long. I started preparing this message weeks ago. And um, the thing that came to my mind before I knew any of the the events that were gonna go down in my life for the the last five weeks when I was studying for this probably early August is the person that came to my mind was my mom legitimately. And I was gonna preach this message talking about her before I had any idea of what would happen in the coming weeks because my mom and dad both, but I, I just thought of my mom because this so characterized her life. That verse so characterized her life, whether it was as a young mom to a couple kids and my dad's crazy idea that came from the Lord, so you can't give him the credit, but like, we're just gonna pack up stuff and we're gonna live in a camper for a while and we're gonna travel around raising money to plant churches and we're gonna leave a good job in a company car and we don't have any money, so we're just gonna trust that God's gonna lead us and they would drive back into their home with change in their pocket and it's the only money they had to their name and my mom's just like, yeah, let's do that. God's gonna provide, our trust is in the Lord. And she went on for 40 years to serve faithfully, which many of you are benefiting from. If you're listening somewhere around the country, you're a part of this church, investing in the next generation. Ultimately, both my mom and the dad investing in the marginalized and taking care of the hurting and the elderly, I watched that all growing up. I I didn't really wanna do that. I wasn't there in my relationship, so I got drugged along, but I got a front row seat to look at what it looked like when you put your hope and your trust in the Lord. She raised a family that, that the greatest thing you could say, learn to put Jesus at the center from watching her coming home every single day with this huge brown Bible, watching her get in the scriptures, hearing about her prayer life going, I want that. I wanna trust in the Lord. I wanna hope in the Lord like that. When she was diagnosed with Alzheimer's, I told this at her celebration service, but. Um, I was with her in the car about two days later and we were driving back to my townhouse and it was just her and I. I'm a full on mama's boy, no apologies. And we're in the car and I said, mom, how, how are you doing? And almost word for word, not trying to quote this verse, but almost word for word, she quoted this verse. I'm scared, nobody would choose this. All we can do is trust the Lord. Early onset Alzheimer's and nobody would, all we can do is trust the Lord. 20 years before that, she was wrestling with God at her bedside because God had done so much in her family. All of them were following and serving Jesus with, with all their heart. And she began to feel this thing in her of God going, listen, will, will you continue to follow me even if I took one of your kids? And I don't say that to freak you out. I don't think, I don't think everybody has that kind of clarity and, and God's not gonna lead everybody to that moment. So just relax. But, but God began to deal with her over weeks of time. Hey, will, will you trust me? with your family, will you trust me with your kids? And my mom wrestled with that because she didn't know what it meant. And she tells the story and I interviewed her for one of the series that we did just so people could hear it. There came a point where in her wrestling after several weeks, she was at her bedside and felt like God was just asking her, hey, will, will you surrender all of it to me even if I take one of your kids? That's how much clarity she had. And on that bedside and on her knees, she said, Lord, I am scared to death, I trust you with my family. And two weeks later, her oldest son in a freak accident was taken home to be with Jesus. And my mom and dad were interviewed for the papers after that time and, and over and over again, this in maybe different words, but this was the gist of it. Listen, we, our hearts are broken. Our life will never be the same. Our trust is in the Lord. And even during my, my dad walking through my mom, walking with my mom through Alzheimer's in such a magnificent and extraordinary way, such an example of love. So about three different conversations we had where my dad would just go, look, I don't understand why people ask why when they go through something like this. And he was he was serious. I don't understand why they would ask why. I just, the only thing that comes to my mind is why not? Why wouldn't I be asked to walk through this? Why wouldn't I go through this in a sin infested world? Why, why, would, why would I somehow be different? And over and over again, I'm telling you, like he would say, it has not, altered my hope in the Lord and I'm telling you it's easy sometimes to give lip service when all of the trend lines are up into the right to go man I'm trusting in the Lord my God my hope is in him all day long but when things start to fly out of control that's where it gets real and at some point in your life you're gonna meet a moment where you have to decide am I going to hope in me or not And if you decide to lean your dependence and your trust in you, your hope in you, I'm telling you, the level of your leaning that dependence is the level of your bitter disappointment when tragedy strikes. Because if you is all you've got in the end, you will be left disappointed at God. You will be left disillusioned. You will be left at a place where you don't understand why and you're tempted to walk away. But your hope is not in you. Your hope is not in the outcomes of your life. Your hope is not in your expectations being met it is every single day like David my trust is in the Lord God my hope is in you all day long and come on one day and we're going to end with this one day the ultimate Goliath is going to be defeated hey the story of David and Goliath is not about you defeating your enemies Stop writing those books. The story of David and Goliath is about Jesus defeating your enemies. I don't know if you know this. The entire central figure of the scripture from Genesis all the way to Revelation is Jesus. And the point of the story is not to lift up David or this epic story of David and Goliath and how you can overcome anything. David and Goliath is a picture of what Jesus has done and will do. The ultimate Goliath is coming down and he's gonna be brought to his knees. Goliath represents sin that is going to be defeated forever death that is going to be defeated and eradicated forever, heartache that's going to be taken away forever, tears that are going to be wiped away from every eye forever, and that King Jesus one day will sit on his forever throne and anything that defies the living God will be brought to its knee under the power and control of the resurrected Jesus. Goliath one day is coming down once for all time, and that's our hope, that's our trust, not in you overcoming anything in the fact that Jesus has already overcome everything, and that's why we worship him. So would you stand with me at both of our campuses, and would you just pray with me in this moment? And for some of you, <clears throat> this is a declaration in the middle of success. This is a declaration in the middle of, of a time in your life where it is so hard But it's your declaration nonetheless that, God, I I wanna maybe be brought back to this place or I wanna be brought to this place for the first time in my life, but I wanna make my declaration in in, in the midst of whatever those circumstances look like, that in you, my God, I'm putting my trust and my hope is in you. And I'm not gonna be confused by that. If that's you at any of our camps, we just lift up your hands, whether this is a declaration, of success or failure. It's something that God's spirit is moving on your heart that I, I need to change the posture, the attitude and the mindset of my heart, but I want this to be true of me. Jesus, I thank you for your grace. I thank you for those even right now in this moment at our campuses that feel the spirit of God at work. God, give them wisdom. And Lord, more than anything else, my prayer today is that people would be moved and overcome by Jesus and his love and his grace, his kingship in our lives. And that we would put you squarely on the throne. Our trust, is in you. We pray this in Jesus' incredible name, amen. Hey, thanks again for listening. If you enjoyed this message, would you do us a favor and rate and review our podcast on your favorite podcast, Capture? You can actually now listen to us on Google Play, Stitcher, TuneIn, SoundCloud, and Apple Podcasts. Basically, this just helps us get the message of Jesus out to more people. And the other thing I would say is we would love for you to join us at one of our gatherings. One of the things we work really hard at is to create a safe place for people to be able to ask questions, to be able to investigate and grow in their faith if they're longtime followers of Jesus. And one of the things that we say a lot is regardless of what background you're coming from, you can belong here before you believe. And so if you want more information about our church, our location, service times, just go to our website at centerpointfl.org.